pray and then, uh, then we'll get started. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for just the immeasurable depth of your truth that we might be able to worship you and praise you, that we might be able to fight sin and find real joy, Lord. This world has nothing for us. Uh, only you have the words of eternal life. So please uh, use this message, use uh, this scripture, Lord, that you so mightily work um, in so many millions of people's lives and throughout the existence of this world you have created. Uh, please uh, let them uh, be efficacious for your people. Um, please uh, save and sanctify. We just pray that your word would do its good work in us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So I want to begin with a quick quote, and I've been told that sometimes when I give quotes, some of you guys like very rapidly uh, try to write these things down. Um, sometimes I give long quotes. So if I give a quote and you try to write it down, um, don't. <laughs> don't worry. If you like a quote, come and ask me later, and I will give you my notes or I will give you the quote um, for some of these things. Sometimes they'll be up there, but for the most part, um, just know that. I'm going to begin today by reading a quote, and I think it'll kind of drop us back in on uh, the study that we're doing and why it's important. This is from a guy named uh, Jay Adams, um, who really uh, brought the biblical counseling movement off the ground um, into the church, and this is what Jay Adams said. He said, Christians should never fear change. They must believe in change so long as the change is oriented towards godliness. The Christian life is a life of continual change. And in the scriptures, it is called a walk, not a rest. They may never say in this life, I finally made it. They must not think there is nothing more to learn from God's word, nothing more to put into practice tomorrow, no more skills to develop, no more sins to be dealt with. When Christ said, take up your cross and follow me, he put an end to all such thinking. He represented the Christian life as a daily struggle to change. Now, what Jay Adams is not talking about is that change is hopeless or that it's just a brutal kind of process. Not at all. What Jay Adams is trying to stress is that change is essential in the Christian life and change is difficult, which is why in this series we're trying to put so much work into how it is that Christians change. The very first uh, sermons that I think I remind you every week, the first four sermons, um, were not so much about how you change you but on how God has a pathway to change you. That ultimately this great work, which the theological word is sanctification, is something that God is doing to you. It's something that God is doing for you. But as we began uh, the last couple weeks, um, the fifth and the sixth sessions that we did in How to Change, uh, that doesn't mean we do nothing. It actually means we do all sorts of things. Like Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, uh, Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. Because God is doing this great work of change uh, in us, we are to work it out. We are to actually do something. We actually to effort and put uh, real discipline into changing. And the word that I gave you that could sum up that whole process is the word repentance, repentance, which is changing your mind about sin or turning away from sin and turning towards uh, godliness. We covered that in this idea of confession, which is having an honest admittance and an honest attitude of sinning before God and desiring to change. And then we added on that last week in 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul exchanged that no one can repent perfectly, 
But we're only called to repent sincerely, that we genuinely want to change. And real repentance is simply desiring strongly to want to change and not being perfectly able uh, to do that. So those two weeks on repentance, we were really covering the attitude of repentance. And what we're doing today is we're adding to our study on repentance by not talking about the attitude, but the actions of repentance. Today, we're going to start covering the actions of repentance. So here's the next phrase that we're covering. Uh, We covered repentance as confessional, repentance as sincere, and today we're learning about repentance is reconstruction. Repentance is reconstruction. And what we mean is reconstructing your life, the way you live, your behaviors, your actions. If we really have grieved over our sin, then we are going to begin to reshape our lives so that we start fighting the sins we were struggling with and we start living free from sin and more for Christ. And that means we're going to put effort into it. The New Testament consistently has this idea. Paul himself says in 1 Timothy 4.7 that we are to train ourselves for godliness. That's important because it doesn't mean go home tonight and take your Bible, put it under your pillow, fall asleep and wake up, and somehow by osmosis you've just become more godly. That's not the way sanctification works. Uh, When God is sovereignly working your salvation out in you, it means you are, according to Paul, training yourself disciplining yourself. And that's essential in the Christian life. Paul goes on to say in verse 8 that for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way and holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So since we have this attitude of real repentance, that's going to follow through with life changes and we're going to put effort into that. One of the ways the Bible describes this as fruit, which is that real repentance leads to fruit, consequential actions that honor God. Jesus himself says that in Matthew 3, 8, when he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you think that you're repenting, but then nothing in your life changes, that's a bad sign. But God has promised us that he's not just forcing you to change, but if that you have really repented, you will naturally change your actions. And the goal of you understanding that is not so that you are forced or intimidated by the Christian life, but it's actually so that you know uh, the sin which seems to destroy us, the sin that seems to corrupt us, the sin that seems to destroy so many parts of our life, that sin that Christ died on the cross for, um, you can fight, you can be relieved from, and as a result of changing, you can experience actual spiritual blessing. Changing your actions as a result of repentance is a blessing. Thomas Watson says it this way, Repentance is the road to spiritual blessings. It helps to enrich us with grace. It makes the soul like a field after a river overflows onto it. It flourishes and it's fruitful. Never do the flowers of grace grow more than after a shower of repentant tears. All that Watson is trying to explain basically is that you should be excited about repentance because even though it involves sorrow, it leads to a transformed life more and more. So this is a pattern we should be excited about and therefore we need a real spiritual strategy to be able to change. What we're covering today is how we create new life patterns for change for God's glory 
um, by understanding Paul and Ephesians' spiritual strategy for change. So when we're talking about actions, what kind of actions are we talking about? What is that strategy? Let me give you some scenarios, and let me explain to you why observing change, and for these scenarios, observing change in other people is going to be so relevant and so important. So scenario number one, imagine someone comes up to you at school, and they want to be friends with you. And they're a really nice person, and they're thoughtful, and they're kind, and they're considerate. They're basically everything you'd want in a friend. Uh, But you find out that in their not-too-recent past, they had a huge problem stealing stuff. Uh, They just went into stores, and they would just steal stuff. It was compulsive. They wanted something, and they took it. And even though they say they're really sorry about it, and that they know it's wrong... You guys are laughing because I'm saying sorry like a Canadian, aren't you? I knew that would happen at some point in the series. Even though they feel sorry about it, they really want to change. But the question is, how do you know that they've actually changed? What would you look for in their actions to know that they've really changed? Scenario number two. Imagine you're the captain of a club at your team or the captain of a sports team at your school. And somebody comes to try out for the team. So your job is to observe them and see if they're fit for the team. And it turns out they're excellent. But you also find out that there's a rumor going around that they have a serious problem with gossip. And as you probably know, gossip can absolutely destroy the camaraderie that's on a team. So the question is, even though they don't want to gossip, even though they say they have a big mouth and they can't help it, what would you be looking for to know that they are going to stop doing that and be a good member of the team. Scenario number three, and I think this one might be a little bit more relevant for some of you. Imagine you're dating someone and you finally decide that this person might be someone you want to marry. And you have good reason for that. You have good reason because they're kind and they go to church with you and they love Christ and they've been baptized as a sign of that. They're basically everything you'd want in a spouse. But something is nagging you in your heart, which is this. When you first started dating, they were honest with you that they cheated on their previous relationship. So even though they feel terrible about it, even though that they've really done a lot of work to make sure that that never happens again, how can you be 100% sure that they've really changed? How can you be sure that none of that has ever happened again? That's the kind of thing we're trying to cover as we get into this topic. And that's not just for you to observe other people's changed, but for you to observe if you've changed. I think we have some assumptions about what change looks like. And I think we also sometimes think that in the Christian life, everything comes down to grace. If someone says they're a Christian, then they are a Christian. And that's true in terms of by faith and simply believing in Christ, that does make you a Christian. But God is not done with his people when he gives them faith. He does work out fruit in their life. And it's not just important for you to observe that in other people, but for you to observe it in your life. So you can see how God is using you, not just for his glory, but for the benefit of others hearing the gospel and seeing the gospel being worked out in your life. And I think an excellent place to go for this is Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're camping out today is Ephesians chapter 4. And now specifically, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 verses 25 to 32. 
But really quickly before that, in verses uh, 17 to 24, Paul explains something to the Ephesian church. He reminds them that he's confident that they can change because they have changed. Paul says in verse 17 to 19 that they looked around at the culture that they were living in. And they understood there was no truth that they could learn from that culture. But instead, they learned Christ. The gospel was preached to them. It took root in their hearts. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they believed in it. But that wasn't all that needed to happen for the Ephesians. What needed to happen is they needed to therefore work out that salvation. The appropriate strategies needed to be taken hold of as the Bible explained them so they could start living on this pathway of transformation that God had provided for them. And it's the exact same for us. The pathway here that Paul gave for the Ephesians is the same one we need. So we can move from inside transformation to showing that transformation on the outside. And the way it shows itself, Paul explains in verse 22 and verse 24 which is these words, putting off and putting on. Putting off certain sinful actions and putting on the opposite godly action. I think if you go back to all of the illustrations I gave you, I think what we think change looks like is someone simply stopping something that they've done. You know, the gossiper you're worried about, if they stop gossiping, that seems enough. If someone doesn't commit adultery anymore, then that seems like it's enough. If someone stops stealing, that that's enough. But that's not true according to Ephesians 4. What is enough is when they stop doing a sin that they are struggling with. Or they start establishing patterns where they're fighting that sin. And they start putting on the opposite godly action. What Paul is going to do for us is explain to us that step one, step two action. Step one, stop doing certain things. Step two, start living in different godly, holy ways. And he's going to give us five examples of that. And even though these five might not exactly apply to you, I promise that the pattern of this is going to apply to you. Because this is the way that every Christian can be confident that Christ is really changing them. So let's jump into it. The very first uh, example that Paul gives us in verse 25 is this. Putting off lies and putting on truth. Putting off lies and putting on truth. Every Christian would say when you put on Christ, when you accept the gospel, when he transforms you from the inside out, that you know the truth. And we don't think we're being cocky about that. We don't think we're being prideful about that. We know it's the truth because our God has said he has given us the truth about the world, about sin, about salvation, the gospel, grace, everything. But in order to be who God says we are, that truth needs to be spoken by us. We need to make a new habit, a new pattern of our life of refusing to lie and to tell the truth. If you think about it, for just a second, one of the easiest ways to destroy a group, like the illustration I gave you, is to lie. If I suddenly announce right here from this podium, um, hot take, lying is cool now, uh, it wouldn't take us very long to basically be at each other's throats. It wouldn't take very long for a lot of us to not be friends anymore, whether permanently or just temporarily, because lies create chaos. And even though I think we know that, we also know that there's lots of reasons that we lie anyways. 
I saw a video not terribly long ago where a group of people were given a statement and then they went on one side or another side of a room to explain if they agreed or disagreed with the statement. And no matter how many videos I watched of these, they always said a statement about lying being okay in a certain scenario. And every time they did, the majority of people said in that scenario, lying is okay. Whether it's about something that will really hurt someone else's feelings or because they wanted their kids to believe Santa Claus existed. There are so many ways that the world thinks that lying is okay. From small lies to big lies. We think lying is okay because all of us would admit we've lied at some point. We lie because we're scared that the truth might make us stand out. Uh, we're lied, uh, we lie because we're scared of certain awkward situations. We lie to get things we want. Uh, for example, flattery to uh, be friends with other people. I think in my experience, sometimes lying is simply funny, whether it's sarcasm in little ways or whether it's really funny to create awkward situations for other people. But regardless of what it is, there are so many ways that lying is acceptable in our culture and it's acceptable to us. And the fundamental thing that Paul begins with and he explains a lot of Ephesians with is that lying, not to put it too dramatically, is one of the most anti-God, anti-good things that someone could do. In John chapter 8, verse 4, Jesus told the Pharisees that their father is the devil who is the father of lies. And the exact same thing that Paul is talking about here is explained and actually basically quoted verbatim from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16, where God says through Zechariah that all of these lies of my people I hate. God hates lying. The word that Paul uses is falsehood to sum up every kind of lie you could imagine. And Paul explains that even though this is wrong and we do this and we feel stuck in this, there is a way to change. The strategy and the motivation that he gives us is that we would desire to be unified with each other. If we desire to be unified with each other, we will know the importance of speaking the truth. Paul says, speak each one of you the truth with his neighbor because we are members of one another. What Paul is talking about isn't members uh, just like the way we think about on Sunday morning, like we're in a business or something like that. When we talk about being members of a church, when we talk about being members in the body of Christ, we're not talking about like a business partnership. We are talking about being in one body, being part of one organism. A famous preacher named Chrysostom once said, if the eye sees something dangerous, they don't keep it from the heart. If the eye sees something dangerous to eat, they don't not tell the mouth. Every part of the body works together perfectly, and that must be built on the truth. And God has given us that truth. And it would work out in our body with our neighbors, with our members, with the people around us, especially the people in the church. And as we do that, as we speak honestly and genuinely and transparently, and most importantly, according to God's word, we would see how good it is to be with God. One commentator writer named Harold Honer, he said it this way, and I believe this quote is on your sheets. Believers base their lifestyle on reality. Don't forget that. Believers base their lifestyle on reality. There is no need to bring falsehood into any relationship, whether with believers or unbelievers. And we should know that that is true, and we should be motivated to speak the truth 
because God's true truth is the greatest news in the world, even if the culture around us doesn't believe that. That's why speaking the truth allows not just reality to come into focus, but God's love to have an effect in the world. If real love is love from God, why would we ever refuse to speak the truth? This is so important to Paul that he couples truth and love together in Ephesians 4.15, in a verse that most of you know well. Speak the truth in love. Truth without love is not truth, and love without truth is not love. They are complementary. Therefore, if you want to love people, speak the truth with them. And that means you personally also need to hold on to the truth. If you want to change, but you are stuck with this problem of lying in small ways or big ways, remember how good the truth is. Remember that reality is only understood in light of God's truth. And you will see change in your life. Here's the second example that Paul gives. And this is in verses 26 and 27. Put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. Put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. Now, when Paul begins verse 26, it seems weird that he actually commands us to be angry. That's actually a command that we're given. It seems very strange, but there's a reason that Paul says this. And because Paul is insinuating that there is a difference between two different kinds of anger. That's sinful anger and righteous anger. Now, sinful anger can be described in many different ways. I'm just going to give you three words to describe sinful anger. Uh, The first is that it's uncontrollable. Sinful anger usually comes uh, from feelings we have that we just let loose. We have no self-control, completely impatient. Uh, The second thing is sinful anger is inconsiderate. Um, If it's strong enough, you could also call it hateful. It doesn't care about its effect or the actions that will affect other people around them. And then the third word is vengeful. Uh, Sinful anger cares about revenge. It's not about us and it's not about God. It's simply about trying to get our own way. Instead of trusting God's plan for ultimate justice, it trusts our own way and tries to make that happen as quickly as possible. And that's one way that anger, in any sense, in a sinful sense, anger is actually one of the easiest ways that we make ourselves God. But Paul says you don't need to be like that. If you suffer uh, with dealing with anger, you don't need to. And the reason is because you can be angry and not sin. So the ultimate question is why is righteous anger different? And it's very simple. Because sinful anger comes from sin, righteous anger is responding to sin. Jesus, when he speaks to the Pharisees in Mark 3, 5, he sees the way the Pharisees don't care for the lowest people of society. And that's sad because they were supposed to represent the goodness and the graciousness of God. And so when Jesus sees through their actions, he sees directly to their hearts. It says he looked around at them with anger. And he was grieved at their hardness of heart. You can see Jesus' grief and anger were mingled together because he had a right response to sin. It was wrong. The psalmist says it way more intensely in Psalm 97.10 where he says, You who love the Lord hate evil. Hate evil. Did you know before today 
that God commands you to be angry and to hate something. So the question is, how do we change our anger? If there's a way to be righteously angry, but so much of our anger is sinful, how do we change it? Well, Paul gives us a strategy, and he explains there's two steps to this strategy. You have to deal with your anger, number one, immediately, and number two, consistently. I think the word might actually uh, be different up there, so if there's a different word, totally fine. But we're going to go with dealing with anger immediately and consistently. The first thing Paul says is don't let the sun go down on your anger, which means immediately deal with your sin. When you recognize that you're angry, deal with it honestly and biblically. Don't ignore it. Don't put it off. Don't make excuses for it. Assess it. And if it's sinful, shut it down. You have the ability to have self-control because God says in Galatians 5, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Deal with your sin immediately. You know that sinful anger is selfish. But you, as someone united to Christ, also know you want to be selfless. So use the gifts God has given you. And when you get angry, don't ignore it, but deal with it. And if it's sinful, fight it. And the second thing that he gives you, the second step to dealing with sinful anger, is to not allow an opportunity for the devil. He says, don't give an opportunity to the devil, which is really talking about dealing with anger consistently. Maybe sometimes you feel justified in your anger and you feel so right about it that you just let it happen. But as Harold Honer, again, a commentary writer on Ephesians says, the devil is going to look to manipulate your angry situation for his purposes. The less we deal with our anger, the more we're playing on the devil's team. Anger is one of the most powerful tools that the devil has to use your life for his purposes, to make more sin happen in the world, for more relationships to be destroyed. And that's not just supposed to be a warning to us. It's supposed to be a blessing to us because we know, like Paul is saying, we don't need to be angry. Because in the same way, your anger, in a sinful sense, can be one of the most powerful tools of the devil. On the other side of the coin, your righteous anger can be one of your most powerful tools to fight sin in your own life. And that is why righteous anger is so important, so accessible, and so important for us to apply in our lives. You know, when our siblings are angry with us, instead of just allowing it to happen because it's a pattern in our life, stop yourself and ask yourself, what am I fighting for here? Do I care this much about my rights in this area, or do I care about being an example of Christ so my siblings can know Christ? And I say that because in a beautiful sense, so many of you are so concerned about your siblings. And that's amazing. So put on righteous anger. Put aside the times you get angry for reasons that we know are unjustifiable. And instead, be angry at your own sin and see the effect it can have on the lives of people that you love. When you're frustrated with teachers who give you way too much homework or coaches who don't understand how hard you are trying to practice, remind yourself, what is their goal in my life to help me? What am I angry about? I want to be comfortable. I want to be understood. I want to be right in this situation. Ask yourself, is it worth it? 
or in a very, very small way, I can actually be an example of Christ to my teachers, to my classmates, to my coaches, to anyone who's around me. I think David Powlison said it very well, a quote that's on your sheets. I'll read the fuller quote for you. It's from a book called Good and Angry that he wrote. He says this, anger done right is a great good. It says that's wrong. And then it acts to protect the innocent and the helpless. It says that's wrong. And it energizes us to address real problems. Because God who is good and does good expresses good anger for a good cause. Jesus gets good and angry in the service of mercy and peace. He is willing and able to teach us to do anger right. And so having and expressing the right kind of anger in the right way is a good goal. If you are sick and tired of contributing to the devil's team, you don't need to anymore. You don't need to struggle with the all-consuming, all-control controllable power of anger not just by getting rid of it but by putting on and reforming anger into something way greater way better and way more powerful and leads to way more blessing in your life and in other people's lives let's go to the third example that paul gives the third example of putting off and putting on in verse 28 and that's putting off theft and putting on generosity putting off theft and putting on generosity. This is actually pretty simple, the idea that Paul is getting at. He says, how do you know that a thief has changed his ways? Threefold process, pretty simple. Number one, they stop stealing. If someone is stealing and they keep sinning, it's pretty obvious they haven't changed. So they first got to stop doing the sin, let the thief no longer steal. But something else needs to happen after that. Step number two is they need to work hard. Why? Because stealing is usually a sign of laziness and stealing is normally a sign of not trusting God's path to prosperity. God has a path that involves us working hard. Even Adam in the garden before sin entered the world was working and work is a blessing to people. Not just from what they receive, but what the process of work does for a person. So the second thing they have to do is work hard. And then there's a third thing, which is they need to give generously. Stealing is about taking, and you know that a thief has changed when they start giving. The opposite godly action. That anything they have to share, they would give to anyone in need. Now there's a direct application, which I think is pretty obvious. If you're stealing something, stop stealing it. And it kind of seems ridiculous because if I were to go and tell you, I think 90% of you are jacking stuff from 7-Eleven, you'd probably laugh in my face. And I understand that. But on this other side of the coin, I also understand from growing up in many different churches that that's also not ridiculous and it's not unreasonable. There's a lot of people who are stuck in this sin. And there's a lot of people who excuse it in tiny little areas. It's okay to sneak a test score off someone else, especially if this grade is super important for my future. It's okay for me to have little white lies to steal friends from other people because their other friends were terrible. They wouldn't be as good as me. So there actually are a lot of ways that stealing is a big issue. But because I think that that's really obvious and because there's something else that I think this applies to, I want to really quickly explain to you another kind of stealing that I think might be a little bit more relevant. 
And I made up a word for it. This isn't uh, biblical. I think the concept is biblical. I'm just calling it spiritual stealing. Spiritual stealing. And what I mean by that is uh, this. Spiritual stealing is taking God's good gifts apart from God's good timing. Taking God's good gifts apart from God's good timing. And what I mean is that sometimes you're taking stuff that God has said, this is not for you yet. Or stealing something that's not actually like a thing that you can grab, but rather something that's a blessing to your soul. Here's a good example. Pornography. Pornography is spiritual stealing. Because God has given you a good gift of intimacy and pleasure in one situation, and that's marriage. And when you decide to look for that apart from God's path of a lifelong partnership, you are stealing from God. You are saying your path is wrong, and so I'm going to take this path. That is a form of spiritual stealing. Here's another example. Parents' rules. Your parents are a good gift of parental guidance in your life. You'd be amazed at how much of the Old Testament is about how important parents are to their children. And many of your parents take that seriously. But the other problem is that sometimes your parents seem to give you rules you don't want to obey. And there's lots of reasons that we might have for wanting to ignore the rules. Well, their rules aren't even biblical. They're just stuff that they made up. Well, the problem is they don't understand how important this thing is to me. Or, as I've seen as the case, I've been obedient in so many other ways. It's just this thing. But the problem is God has given you one sure way in your current life to be blessed. And it's not independence yet. It will be. And it's going to come way quicker than you think. But currently, your only path to blessing is obeying your parents. Regardless of our excuses, unless they are commanding you to do sin, if you are deciding to disobey their rules, to not come back at your curfew, to date when they've told you not to date, there's a kind of stealing that you are committing, which is stealing independence. Again, independence is so close down the road, but while it is not here, you have one path and one path only. And if you do not obey that path, that is going to ruin your life. No matter how much pleasure that you think you are getting, it is going to corrode your soul and it is going to make it harder to obey God in future areas of your life. But the good thing is this path is available for you through a very simple procedure. Number one, work hard. Work hard at obedience. Work hard at doing the responsibilities you are called to do. Number two, be independent. In the ways that you can't be independent with everything you have, use the freedoms you do have to prove you want to honor God. And the last thing is to give. If you are stuck stealing in any of these areas, literal or spiritual, the easiest way you can fight it is to give. Because that's the opposite attitude of what we so much get stuck in. And the reason that this is so important is not just so you can prove that you're a Christian. It's because when you honor God's path to prosperity, you will get the thing you need most, which is godliness, which is closeness with God, which is being an agent of change for God's glory, for the gospel's glory in this life. And the thing is, if you're a Christian, I don't need to convince you of that. That is what you want. 
the beautiful thing that happens here is that when you work hard to do this, you will actually see that the promises of God are true and good. The way Paul says it in Acts 20 is that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that? If it's hard to believe that, it's because you haven't adopted the spiritual strategy yet. But when you do, and you see the blessings that it leaves in your life and the benefits it gives to other people, you will see how much better it is to be a Christian than anything else that this world might be telling you. Put off theft, put on working hard, and give. Give for God's glory. Number four, two left. The fourth thing Paul tells us to do is to put off corrupt speech and to put on upbuilding speech. It's verses 29 and 30. This is the second time of five that Paul's gone back to speech because it's super important. Most of you know James chapter 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That sounds like super dramatic. But if you've lived long enough to say a lot of stupid things, you'll realize how true that is and how destructive our speech is. I was thinking today that if I could take back like the 10 worst things I've said to someone and then instead someone could like punch me in the face 10 times, I'd 100% take that. Because no matter how brutal a punch to the face might feel, the 10 worst things I've said are still destroying people's lives today. Words stick with people. Words go deep. Like we already said in verse 25, they destroy unity. But the problem is just speaking truth is not enough. Paul talked about what you're supposed to say. Now he's talking about how you say it and why you say it. Because just speaking the truth is not enough. You might pass someone at the halls in school and comment on their weight. And even though you might be accurate from the raised eyebrows that I literally see in this room, you know that just because it's true doesn't make it right. Because that accuracy could be a place of trying to destroy someone, to try to hurt someone. Some of us have a big issue correcting people all the time. And most of the things we say are corrections on what other people say. And even though you might be right, even though you might be helping people understand the right facts, we all know that those people can get really annoying really fast. And it's not just because we don't like to be corrected, which is part of it, and that's our own problem. But the beef we actually have with that is because we know they don't want to help us. We know that those people could be exhausting and we can be those exhausting people because we really want to prove that we're right and we want to prove that they are wrong. That's why it doesn't just matter what you say, but it matters how you say it and why you're saying it. That's why Paul says, don't say corrupting things. The word corrupt is the idea of dissolving something. Like if you drop something into a jar of acid and it just starts dissolving, our speech can have that effect on people. Even truth that we speak with sinful motivations or to destroy other people, dissolving speech can dissolve people. But the point that Paul is saying, that he's already made twice, both in verse 25 and in Ephesians 4.15, that we are to speak the truth in love, is that we must speak the truth with loving motives and methods with loving motives and methods that we speak the truth and that our approach demonstrates that we love the people we're talking to 
Paul explains that there are two ways that you can make this right in your life. The first one is to speak the truth in the right place and at the right time. Paul says, speak the truth rather than corruption as fits the occasion. I think I could give you guys a ton of examples of what this looks like, but I think you know a lot of them. Gossip could be people speaking the truth, but to the wrong people with the wrong intentions at the wrong time. You could give intense, legitimate critique to someone, but if you know that they are discouraged or they're in a sensitive season or they're broken down right now because something hard has happened, that can be unmerciful. If you speak purely on feeling, without self-control, that can destroy people too. Proverbs 29, 11 says that only a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. I'm going to speak the truth. But because I love someone, I'm going to do my best to speak it in the right place at the right time with the right intention as fits the occasion. But the second thing that he explains is that the reason ultimately that you speak anything, anything, is because you wanted to give grace to those who hear. Upbuilding speech is merciful and a gift. I love the way that the Old Testament describes how good it is to speak good things for good reasons to people. The effect the Old Testament describes is that it heals people, that your speech can heal people. Proverbs twelve eighteen. there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs sixteen twenty four. gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Do you want to know how to change your speech? Try to make as many things as you say, everything that you say, be truth in love. Ask yourself, do I want to see this person know Christ more? Do I want to see this person abandon discouragement and receive hope in the gospel? Then I am going to work on my words. I am going to work on not just shutting up when I feel like I've got something rude to say or something accurate to say, but out of anger. I'm going to speak in such a way that I would upbuild someone. And very quickly, Paul adds a really serious motivation for this, which is that we do not want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, anytime you talk about God, you're really getting into the depths of what's most important about theology. So I want to speak very, very accurately as best I can, even though there's a whole theology about this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit. But the basic thing that he's getting at is that when you speak corrupting things, God has an attitude of grief towards it. There's a kind of sorrow, a kind of sadness that God has about it because it is so unlike the kind of thankfulness that should come out of the mouths of people saved by Christ. We've been sealed for the day of redemption. The last thing we would want to do is say something to someone who God might have a sovereign plan of redemption for. We are called to be agents of healing. And when we grieve people, saved or unsaved, we have the same attitude that Paul had in 2 Corinthians 7 when he was grieved at the response of the Corinthians. Don't dumb down the importance of your speech. It is so important. And the motivation you should have is that you don't need to say corrupting things. 
you have the ability to say not just what is right in God's eyes, but what heals others and heals yourself. And I think that leads very well into the last example that Paul gives. And this one will be pretty quick. The fifth thing in verses 31 and 32, Paul explains this spiritual strategy of putting off and putting on is this. Put off being an enemy and put on being a friend. Put off being an enemy, put on being a friend. And that's just my way and my phrase of trying to explain all of the attitudes that Paul mentions. Paul says, put off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. I think you know what most of those words mean. And if you summed them up, it'd be the attitudes of an enemy. Don't hold grudges against people. Refusing grace to some people is wrong. Lashing out, stirring up trouble, publicly calling out certain people. That's an attitude of thinking other people are your enemy. You guys remember what Pastor Josh spoke on this Sunday? The radically different call that Christians are called to is to love our enemies. The motivation, I think, should be so obvious. According to Romans 5, we were enemies of Christ. How many of you were saved because of the attitude of an older Christian in your life? How many of you were saved because of a sermon by a pastor that you could see had a totally different attitude? Had so much more grace than you had seen to people who was offering so much more mercy because they were reflecting the God who saved them. That's why Paul says you have the ability to put on kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. One thing one of my Greek professors used to say is if you look through all of the fruit of the Spirit, all these consequences of the Holy Spirit changing your life from the inside out, is you don't become a hardened person, you become a softer person. Where I'm from in Canada, hockey players have an insult where they'll call someone soft. You've got to be tough. If you are soft, you're bad at this. God is saying that when you become softened from the heart... You become spiritually attractive to other people. You demonstrate the love of a savior because you are enveloping the attitudes of a friend. You're invitational, even to enemies. You're warm, you're comforting, you're welcoming. Doesn't mean you abandon truth. It doesn't mean you never rebuke people, but you pick your cases well because you don't want the people you talk to to ever have a doubt that you want the best for them. Put off the attitudes of an enemy. Put on the attitudes of a friend. And the one he really stresses is forgiveness because that really comes down to the core of what it means to be a Christian. Not for you to forgive, but you to act as someone who is forgiven. Drew Hunter wrote a book called Made for Friendship. It's an excellent book for any of you to read if you want to know what it's like to be a friend. I would love to do a series for you on friendship. But until that happens, there's the book suggestion. And here's a quote from it that I think is so important. If you are Jesus's friend, how do you know that he will always love you? Because he already has. A significant part of the Christian life is simply getting used to the fact that God actually loves you. And he always has from eternity past. You didn't get saved the moment you believed. Not in God's eyes. In your experience, that is what happened. But the plan of God bringing you the gift of faith and radically transforming you, that was something that a million, billion, trillion, innumerable years ago, God planned in his own mind. That's how far back he loved you. 
If that doesn't motivate you to love other people, I don't know what will. That God's love is never going to run out on us. That God's love is freely given to us, even when we do struggle with being an enemy to people. God's love is still for us, but he wants to radically transform you, not just so you would experience the assurance of being with Christ, but that you would be a demonstration of Christ to other people, that other people would get to know Christ. Christians aren't just people who are forgiven by Christ. They become friends with Christ. Christ told his disciples in the garden in John 15, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. Yes, we serve Christ, but we're also friends with Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. So forgive people. Don't have limitations on how far you would go to help someone else. You'll be amazed at how far God can take you in that because of what his spirit has done for you. Now, let me sum up all of this very, very quickly by saying this. These are not attitudes that just begin overnight. That's not what this sermon is about. It's not about you're not a Christian because you're just bad at this. I can tell you from studying this for weeks and months, I'm bad at this. What this is about is beginning to establish new patterns. That's what this is about. This is supposed to be a spiritual strategy to start implementing these things in your life. And if these things are difficult, then you need to go back to 2 Corinthians 7. You need to go back to what we covered in Psalm 51, and you need to understand what repentance is. Because when you see the pain of sin and you have sorrow for sin, it does result in saying, God, give me the strategy to deal with the sin. And he's given you one. And he's given you one that is effective. It is helpful. It never becomes unhelpful. And it brings real blessing and change in your life. Let's pray. Father, we never want to be tired of saying that you are good and you do good. Father, there is nowhere else we have to go. Only you have the words of eternal life. Please help us implement these strategies in our life that we wouldn't just say we're Christians, but we'd live out the Christian life because we love Christ. We love the infinite mercy that you have poured out on us through your son. Do not let us forget it. Do not let us be lazy about sanctification. Though your sovereign work is happening in us in so many ways that we don't see, let us be disciplined to train ourselves in godliness. Let us implement these things in our life that we would be a light, that we would be motivated to take all of the blessings that you had given us in your Son and by the power of your Spirit, that we might truly be the Christians that you have made us to be. Thank you, Father, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.